I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. This week brings us to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Taking chapter 3 nice and slow. Alright, have you ever had the experience that when you want to do something like really, really, really badly, but things just keep ma- happening to make you think you just shouldn't? Like, it's like, okay, I'm getting signs that maybe I shouldn't be doing this. It doesn't have to be like a bad thing, like, oh, I'm getting signs I shouldn't be doing it. Obviously, there's signs for that. But I mean, like, I'm just talking like, you go out to exercise, but you hurt your knee. Alright, then you recover from hurting your knee, and then you get sick. And then, oh my gosh, it rains, you know, and all that. Like, you just like, maybe I shouldn't exercise. Maybe just be a couch potato. Well, I really enjoy camping, and I've had a few trips like that, where things just seem to go wrong over and over again. It's like, I shouldn't be here. But back in 2013, a friend and I decided we wanted to drive up from Mississippi to canoe camp on the Buffalo River. Right, so start on the on one part of the Buffalo River. We have our backpack, tent, all that kind of stuff in the canoe with us, and like three days down the river, we got our gear, strapped on its canoe, and made our way up to Arkansas. We thought we were prepared, uh, but I don't know if you've ever been canoeing before. But one thing I learned really quickly is when you're on a river, there's no shade, especially a big river, and in late July, that means it gets hot. And nothing makes you more miserable more quickly than when you are hot. This is why I like fall. This is why I like winter. And so, it doesn't take long for our jokes and good times to die down when we get in that canoe. You know, you get off, you got the dopamine going like, yeah, we're going camping. Man, it's hot. I'm sweaty. And you just get quiet after a little while. You're not having that good a time anymore. Well, another thing that we didn't really prepare for was where we were going to camp. We just thought, like, it's going to be pretty easy. It's a river. There's going to be banks and all that kind of stuff. Well, we didn't want to camp out on rocks, you know, or sand and get sand all over our gear and everything. So we decided at this one point to hoist the canoe up a hill to try to get to the top and, um, and get on some grass. Only the effort of trying to get this canoe up the hill made my friend's hernia reopen. Uh, And so whatever jokes we may have had left in us were just done at this point. And so now, like at this point in our trip, we just really want to find a spot. Like my friend is hurting, he can't do anything, he can hardly paddle. And I'm like, and he's having a bad time, I'm mad. We finally find a bank, a sandy bank, we pull up the canoe and make camp. And my friend is out of commission. He sets up his his hammock and just lays there quietly. I don't know what, like, I don't know if he's mad at me for making us, like, hoist this canoe up this hill. You know, I don't know what's going on. I just know I'm tired, I'm mad, I'm ready to set up camp. So again, I'm trying to avoid rocks and sand as much as possible, so I find this nice grassy patch. It's a great spot for a tent. So I get it all set up, and I, you know what? I, before I even like unload anything else, I'm just going to take a rest in this tent. But after a few minutes, I notice probably around the, the neighborhood of at least a thousand insects crawling around inside my tent and on my feet and on my legs. They were ticks. I had set up my tent 
in a bed of ticks. And they're all over, so I scramble. I'm, I get my tent, and I'm shaking it out, and I, I throw it away, and I run to the water, and I, I'm, I'm getting water like I'm trying to drown these ticks or whatever. I'm just, ah, you know, I'm freaking out. And so I'm done. I'm so done with this trip. Finally, and, and praise God, this is one thing that went well. We got done with our trip like 48 hours sooner than we were planning. Because this was the first day. This is the first day of our trip, and I'm like, I, I can't do this for two more days. We finished early, but, I mean, guess what? We get everything, get our canoe strapped to the car, get it all, we're happy, we're at the car. He's out of gas. And this is North Arkansas where, where you know, there's hills and everything, so it's not like you're conserving gas on the way to the gas station. I'm sorry, but I don't really want to go back to Arkansas. <laughs> I've been there a couple of times. It's okay. All right, there's a lot of other places that, that are fun and not Arkansas. All right. Among the many problems with our trip was the factor that we were just unprepared. We were just a couple of guys in our early 20s who thought, let's go do this. So we strap on our gear, whatever, and we just kind of went for it. We didn't think about many of the factors ahead of time. I don't even think we brought sunscreen. Peter wants us to think ahead. Peter wants us to be prepared so that we're not caught off guard. And specifically, in our passage today, he wants us to prepare for suffering. Already, Peter has indicated that suffering is a part of the Christian life. Okay, let's just do a quick walkthrough. He implied it in chapter 1, verse 1, when he calls the Christians the diaspora. You guys remember that? They're scattered. And that implies a kind of suffering, exile. Chapter 1, verse 7, he said that our faith is proved genuine through trials, even though it's tested by fire. In chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, he compared the believers to Jesus as people who are rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. Again, that implies a suffering. In chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, Peter addressed suffering as slaves. You guys remember that? We talked, we, there was a whole sermon about suffering. And then already in chapter 3, in verse 9, remember from last week, if you just look up a few verses, Peter has suffering in mind when he's admonishing believers, right, to not repay reviling for reviling, right? Reviling is a kind of, of, of suffering, you could say. So, so get, get this, suffering is part of the whoop and wharf of the Christian life. Welcome to Christianity. And now Peter, for some time, his focus is going to be on suffering exclusively. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking a lot about suffering. Peter does not want Christians to be unprepared. And if we are already living, right, like chapter 3, verses 8 to 12, if we're already living like this, then we will respond, then we will be prepared to respond differently to suffering. And this passage shows us what that looks like. Alright, it shows us how to be prepared for suffering. Let's read together. Chapter 3, starting in verse 13. 
Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Alright, how do we prepare for suffering? First, focus on your obedience. Alright, P- Peter asks a rhetorical question here. He starts off, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And the implied answer is no one. If you're going to do good, who's going to harm you for doing it? This harkens back to chapter 2, right, with governments, that, that governors are those sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Easy peasy. Now how many of you, when you pass a policeman on the side of the road, get a little nervous? How much more nervous do you get when you see him start pulling out when you pass him? And how much more nervous do you get when you see the blue lights in your rearview mirror? I, I get nervous no matter what's happening with the policeman. I, my heart rate goes up. But if you're going the speed limit and obeying the traffic laws, you don't have to be nervous. Peter's point is that in the normal operations of daily life, if you're truly zealous to do good, then you don't need to fear punishment. You don't need to be afraid of of retribution or punishment. In fact, um, that's one thing that's freeing about the Christian life, is that if you're truly living the Christian life, then you don't need to fear retribution or punishment because you're always striving to do good. But, just like governments, not how it always works. That's why Peter adds, after this, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And this is where being prepared comes in. Because I want to ask you a question. How many of you, as you see increasing hostility and opposition to Christianity in culture, how many of you are prepared to see it as an opportunity for blessing? We see it as an opportunity of fear, don't we? We kind of fear what's happening. I do. I certainly get scared by it at times. And this is why a focus on obedience is important. Just focus on your obedience. Sounds like a Sunday school answer, right? Or something you'd say. It's like number three on the list of Sunday school answers. Right, so like Jesus is number one, and then the Bible's number two, and then obey, obey God, or obedience, right, it's number three. But this is incredibly crucial because what suffering does is it takes away our focus from obedience and toward survival. And there's a difference. We're not called to survive suffering. We're called to an obedient suffering. And yeah, that obedience is the basics we already know. So right, when suffering comes, don't get drunk. Don't commit adultery. Don't do all that kind of stuff. Live a moral life. 
But what specifically what Peter has in mind is something a little bit more. It's what we saw last week in chapter three, verses eight to nine. What what kind of what what kind of obedience? A unity of mind obedience, a, a sympathy obedience, a brotherly love obedience, a tender heart obedience, a, a humble mind obedience, a, a, a re, not reviling for reviling obedience. And 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 why, remember last week he says don't revile. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. See how he's connecting the passages here? With the word blessing? Our obedience brings us a blessing when our obedience is a blessing to others. Reminds me of Abraham. Right? Abraham's obedience is meant to bless many nations. And that's why it is so important to focus on our, on our obedience when suffering comes. Right? How else shall we prepare for suffering? Focus on your king. Peter continues, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor the Christ as holy. Peter is showing us the two human options for fear. Them or Christ. Those are the two human options for what we fear. The unbeliever's only fear is, is them, the, the world. Right? That's their only fear. But believers can be tempted to forget that their greatest fear should be their God. And so we end up kind of fearing the world instead. This harkens back to chapter 1, verse 17. You remember we talked about like the sources of our holiness? Where does our holiness come from? And, and one source of our holiness is, is fear. What Peter wrote, And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And, and then later on in chapter 2, he's like, if you don't get it now, I'm going to say it explicitly. Fear God. Not a, remember what we said. It's not a servile, um, cowering, uh, being afraid kind of fear, but an awesome, holy, humble kind of fear. And again, like obedience, this question, or this, this, this seems obvious. Jimmy, who should we focus on when we suffer? Jimmy, who's not even paying attention. Um, Jesus. And he gets it right. Right? Jim, good job, Jimmy. But, alright. In our day, as we look across the landscape of our culture, even the world, how rapidly culture changes. How much hostility there is toward Christianity, and we see how the church is responding. I don't think that we see a lot of fearing Christ, honoring Christ. We see a lot of fearing the world and fearing what's happening in the world. We fear them. We fear them, the they. They are coming after us. We fear what they might do to us. But Jesus Himself said, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul? Rather, 
fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the only way that we will ever be prepared to withstand the temptation to fear them is if we, what, Paul, what Peter says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. There's, guys, there's nothing that culture can do to harm the church. You name it, you name what they want to do to try to take away from the church, they can't harm the church. There's nothing someone can do that harms the gospel. Christ is king and he will build his church. And he builds his church in cultures that accept it, and he builds his church in cultures that reject it. And so we don't need to fear. We honor Christ as holy. And this, this is, that's an important point because this leads us to our next one. Focus on your mission. This is where I get the, the theme of this sermon, okay? Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone for the hope that is in you. Church, our mission is not to build a nation. Our mission isn't to make culture like us or accept us. Our mission is not even to try to avoid suffering as much as possible. Our mission is to offer hope about an eternal kingdom. Look, we, we can begrudge the time that we live in. Honestly, it is hard for me to be thankful for where we are in time and history. Man, like, culture is changing so rapidly, misinformation's all over the place. Mark Zuckerberg controls the world, I don't know. But there's wars, right, and, and famines, and coups in all these different countries. Division's getting worse. And that, listen, I, this is why I like to go home and watch funny shows at night. I don't need more drama. <laughs> I don't want more drama, I want to laugh. But this is the time God has chosen for us. For you. And the mission is the same as it has always been. The mission has not changed. And God is still building His church in the same way He has always been. And what this means, what, what Peter implies, is there's got to be a reason that they're asking for the reason for our hope. So let me give examples of how not to get someone to ask for our, the reason for our hope. They aren't going to ask that question if you're constantly mocking them. They're not going to ask that question if we are constantly shaming them. And if it, well, they're certainly not going to ask that question if we're more prepared to attack them than share the gospel with them. They're not going to ask for the reason for our hope. No, 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 no. They're going to ask that question when they see that suffering doesn't affect us the way it affects the world. When they see that persecution isn't a cause for us to despair, but to bless, for, to rejoice. They're going to ask us that reason when we're singing hymns rather than grumbling. 
That's exactly right. Peter says just as much when he says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Right? Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Alright guys, real talk. Left behind. Kurt Cameron. I certainly don't want to cause any unnecessary offense here. Uh, but I just want to say that uh, I think those movies have done a lot of, to cause a lot of fear for like the end times, rather than give a lot of hope. And like the hope, yeah, the, it does give hope that Jesus will return, but that's what the Bible does to you. But I remember one point specific. I mean, it's been years and years and years since I watched those movies. But I remember one point specifically where this lady is up in front of the governing authorities, uh, and she's on trial for being a Christian. And she was given a defense of her faith, and she was sassy. Like, I'm talking like, I don't know if you guys have seen those movies, like, for real, like, sassy. I don't think that's the kind of response that Peter has in mind here. I think of the examples that we have in Scripture. Remember Paul in Acts 26? And he's in front of King Agrippa. And just... Just imagine that King Agrippa is like the, your least favorite like governing authority president, whoever your least favorite president is. No names. Just bring them to mind. Okay? And this is what Paul says in Acts 26. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today. I would to God, he says later, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains. Gentleness and respect. That's, that's countercultural. That's counter what the world would do. People hearing the gospel not only with our words, but in our disposition too. And, and Paul was bold. Like, I'm not trying to say, like, like this means like we're just like really quiet and like mm, nice. Like, Paul was really bold. But he did so with gentleness and respect. And if bringing the people to Christ is our mission, if winning, winning people to the gospel is our mission, if, if building the church is our mission, then this will prepare us for our suffering. Is a focus on our mission. Fourthly, focus on your response. Verse 16, uh, Peter adds, Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter explains that to prepare for suffering, we need to have a, a good conscience. Now, I want to explain what Peter does not mean first, and then I'll explain what he does mean. Uh, here, in this particular place in Scripture, not everywhere in Scripture, Peter doesn't mean good conscience by like the feeling of a good conscience. All right? Although there is some overlap. Right? If, if you have a good conscience, then you'll have a clean conscience. But that's not what he's focusing. He's not talking about the feeling. And, and the example is, is there's sinful people all over the world whose conscience has never bothered them. They have a clean conscience most of the time. This, this room is full of sinful people, me included, whose consciences don't bother them when they should. 
Right? I, don't, I have a clear conscience sometimes when I shouldn't have a clear conscience. My conscience can be misled. All of ours can be misled. They're not, they don't work correctly all the time. So, so I don't think that Paul is, is talking about like the feeling. right? As long as you have the feeling of a good conscience, like the slander won't stick. No, I, this is what I think Peter means. I think Peter means the, the fact of a good conscience. In the sense that having a good conscience means accusations don't stick to your behavior. The, 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 the slander, the reviling, things people say, hypocrite, uh, liar, you don't truly love people, that kind of stuff, it just doesn't stick. You have, you have a good conscience. One time I was at the football track at Glendale High School. I like to try to go there to run because there's no hills. Uh, and uh, a kid who was just kind of hanging out by himself around the place where my lap would end and I would rest, you know, rest, that kind of thing. And so, I, like, it's kind of an awkward situation. It's, it's like the middle school kids who came out for football and, like, here I am, like, this 30-year-old dude, like, running on your track. I don't know what to say. So, hey, man. Uh, and, and he's like, and he, you know, just responds. Um, he's like, he, he says, hey, I can't be over there. Uh, because they keep making fun of my mom, and I just keep getting angry and angry and angry. Like, okay. Uh, and so I just kind of give them the best advice I could. Uh, and I said, I said that um, as long as they see that it bothers you, they'll keep teasing you. But if you act like it doesn't bother you, then they'll stop eventually. Having a good conscience is the fact of having good behavior and a good response so that the accusations just fall flat. Doesn't mean that they won't happen, just that they won't verify what people are saying. By the way, I think that's good advice, right? If, if someone like does slander you or make fun of you, like showing it doesn't get to you. Uh, and just as an aside, the reason I've gotten to that place is because I'm very, very, very bad at comebacks. So I never had like a good zinger in return. So I had to figure out another way to cope. And I, I feel that's a good way to cope to people making fun of me. I take it for what, what it is. But that's, that, that's exactly how Peter explains it here. So that those who revile your good behavior in Christ, lie about you, slander you, accuse you, may be put to shame. That the, act, the good conscience, their accusations, their reviling, doesn't stick. Now, my point is, we focus on our response. What, is, what does it mean as far as our response? It means that as far as we are accused and slandered and mocked and mistreated or lied about, we don't respond in kind. Rather, we respond in such a way that those accusations continue to fall flat. We prepare for suffering by determining beforehand how we will respond knowing that one day justice will come. That's what Paul means when he says they will be put to shame. He means that they'll be put to shame when, when God comes. So prepare for suffering by focusing on your response to suffering. Lastly, focus on God's will. Peter concludes this paragraph. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And in this passage, right, this doesn't, 
part of what I'm going to say comes out of this passage. So I don't want you to think I'm, I'm trying to read too much in this passage, but this passage is a good opportunity uh, to talk about God's will and ask the question, what is God's will? And I, I want to focus on three aspects of God's will, all right? The first is the obvious statement that God doesn't want us to suffer because of evil we do, but rather despite the good that we do, right? That's an, uh, what God wants, right? I want you, if you're going to suffer, I want you to do good because of it. We talked about this last week. It's possible that suffering happens, persecution happens, hostility, whatever, because we're not acting like Christ at all. People get mad at hypocrisy uh, and instead of integrity. So integrity means standing up and speaking the truth to things that are wildly unpopular while doing it in a Christ-like way. That's the whole point of this, right? Don't give people good reason to, to revile you. So, so the first part of God's will is, yeah, God wants you to do good, alright? Cool. But the second part of God's will at play here is that His will that we should suffer. Right? God's will that His people should suffer. I'm going to use an example that I got from Facebook. A lady posted like, I wish I could turn back culture uh, to morals and values like we turn back our clocks. Not, not a bad sentiment. It's not bad to want culture to have morals and values. That's not bad. But that might not be God's will. It could be His will that culture continues to degenerate and that His people should suffer. Not necessarily for sins that they have committed, but because that's His will, to make them more like Christ. So a focus on God's will means we come to Him with an open posture. In, in, in a state of surrender and say, God, I, I may not want this. Like, I may want things to go back to where they were, but that may not be your will. And if you will that I should suffer, then I, I, I trust in you. I trust in you. And, and thirdly, a focus on God's will means His will that's written to us in His Word. Alright, that will that I just talked about, His will that we might suffer, we know, right, that God has called us to suffer. The part of our gospel calls us to suffer. But, He doesn't tell us when or how or why that's always going to happen. What He does reveal to us is that how He wants His people to be and how He wants us to live. Guys, if we are ever to suffer for doing good, it, it is because we are clinging to and diving deeply into this Word. And that might seem obvious too, but there are a lot of people who think that they're like trying to obey God's will and suffering, but they sure aren't following these things that we've been talking about. So how are we ever to know how to respond to someone who's slandering us and mocking us. How, how in the world are we ever going to respond to an enemy who's hating us? It's by living and breathing in God's revealed will, His written word. Over and over and over and over and over again. 
So focus on God's will. Here's, here's something I think will be comforting. All of you are unprepared for suffering. I'm unprepared for suffering. All of us in this room are sinners apart from Christ. And all of us, even though we might be in Christ, still have sin. We sin in heinous ways. We sin in ways that surprise us. We are all deeply broken and in severe need of grace. We're unprepared for suffering. That's why we need Jesus. We need someone who has gone before us into this kind of suffering. Someone who has already prepared our way and showed us what this suffering, being prepared for the suffering looks like. We need someone who will be with us in this kind of suffering. We need someone who can redeem our suffering. Who can redeem our sins and our failures and our mistakes. We're not the heroes in this story. This this is not up to us. It is up to Jesus. Jesus is the hero. And if ever we are to prepare ourselves for this kind of suffering, then Jesus must be our refuge. He must be our, our source. The one that we go to, the one that the one we go to when we say, we can't do this. We can't. It's not in us to do this. And it is not in us to point people to Christ. We need you to do that through us. So this this morning, this morning, we all are invited to come to this. This Jesus. Say, God, we're unprepared. We're not prepared. We need you. Desperately. And by His grace, He answers that. And He will prepare us. He'll prepare us for whatever is to come. But at the end of the day, we we rest all of our failures, all of our mistakes, all of our sins, All are resisting His will at His feet. And say, in you only can any of this be redeemed. And if you are not in Christ today, if you are not a Christian, Jesus invites you to this. He invites you to bring sin. Heinous, surprising, wicked sin. He invites you to bring mistakes. And failures. Yelling at your spouse. Yelling at your kids. Your brokenness. Your tiredness. Your weariness. Are you weary of trying to follow Jesus? Are Are you weary? Are you scared of persecution? Jesus invites all of that. You can lay it on Him. And He is faithful and good to give you goodness, Grace, faithfulness, wisdom, righteousness, peace, hope. For all our slandering and reviling that we do, He never responds in kind. Let's go to to Jesus today.
You are a good, good Savior. Lord, how often have I followed you or sat still kicking and screaming? Lord, I still sin in ways that surprise me. And it's just a reminder that sin still lives in me and that I am in desperate need of a great, great, merciful Savior. And that day by day, You continue to be that great, merciful Savior. Not not just for me, but for all who are in this room. A great, merciful, faithful Savior who sustains us, who redeems us, redeems our actions and our words, and a Savior who prepares our way. Lord, You are the God of hope, and You give us a reason for hope even in the midst of suffering. So we come before You today. We say, Lord, You don't have hope. You are hope. And we come to You for hope today. Give us faith and work in us, Lord. And it's in Your name that we pray. Amen.